Welcome to the December 31st, the New Year's Eve edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I am Anthony Bardaway, and this time we almost got Romeo back until some uh, serious uh, technical failures. But he will be with us on the other side of the new year. Most immediate news to share is that Russia has decided to greet Ukraine in the new year with a series of very large missile salvos, along with suicide drones. These happen both on the 29th and on the 31st. The 29th salvo included 69 missiles. Of them, 54 of them were intercepted and shot down, with most of the infrastructure damage hitting Lviv. Uh, thankfully, all of the missiles that were directed against Kiev were intercepted, though again, those injuries came from uh, scrap that had fallen from the sky and hit a house. And then on New Year's Eve, I haven't gotten the full information yet because quite frankly, the situation is still ongoing, but there was another very large missile salvo, again, against the entirety of Ukraine. Um, if you, There's a video going out right now of the missile trails out of Astrakhan region of Russia, and they just completely filled the sky of how many of these things there were. Uh, today's salvo was more deadly. There was one person who was killed, and I saw seven injured, but let's see how that develops throughout the day. There was a missile, one missile strike within Solomansky district, which is further to the west end of the city, and then a hotel next to the Palazzo Ukraina station, a fairly swanky hotel, and apparently there is one journalist from Japan who was injured in that attack, which is kind of amazing. That's all who was injured, again, just of the news I have right now. It will develop throughout the day, considering that an entire corner of this hotel is demolished by the missile. I completely expected this to happen. I actually kind of expect there to be a missile strike at midnight, uh, just because that seems like the most ghoulish thing that Russia can do. And that's typically how you can uh, guess what Russia will do. Just whatever is the most evil thing possible in the moment, that's what Russia will do. So my guess, um, ringing in the new year with a midnight missile strike. But that is just speculation on my part right now. The missile attack today was. Uh, extremely loud, actually, considering the number of anti-air intercepts that were occurring earlier in the day. It was just boom, 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 boom. Um, but again, that was still mostly the the defenses, um, not just the the strikes themselves. So that particular quality of sound of the outgoing fire, to me, um, it's it is quite comforting in its own way knowing that that is what is protecting the city. But away from the air and our cities behind the lines going into our battlefield update. Now, the situation is, again, largely unchanged from last week. Intelligence Chief Bodanov actually gave an interview with the BBC telling how the situation with the war is largely in a deadlock at the moment, and he seemed quite frustrated with that fact. Uh, again, ever since the major advances to retake uh, the Kharkiv Oblast and the western part of the Kherson Oblast, including Kherson City itself, the situation has largely ossified. There has been no uh, serious advances in either direction. 
though there is evidence that they that may be changing at some point within the coming weeks. Uh, there's ev- my first bit of evidence for this would be looking at the battle for Kremena. Kremena was the Russian headquarters for the, I guess you could say, uh, Kharkiv, uh, Luhansk front. So the northernmost part of the fighting and Ukraine has advanced enough on Kremena that they have largely abandoned their headquarters in the city and moved it to deeper within Russian lines, especially moving south of the city. Ukraine seems to be attempting a flanking maneuver to, if not surround the city, then at least obtain an operational encirclement, the kind of thing that led to the multiple advances that eventually took Kharkiv Oblast. Although this time, uh, within those advances, they were backed up by being able to pin the enemy against the river. While in Kremena, the Krasna River is not so intimidating that it could provide a, a serious logistical challenge for the Russians there. But other than that, I believe that there will be a larger assault on Kremena City uh, within the coming weeks, and once that happens, it will likely lead to another, at least miniature, collapse of the Russian lines in that sector. And if Kremena falls, then just south of Kremena would be the Lysychansk-Severdonetsk urban conglomeration. Looking a bit south of that to Bakhmut, again, the situation there is largely the same as it was when I last explained it in the last episode. Uh, No new surprises. However, the last few days have been somewhat good for Ukraine. They have been able to retake some of the kind of outskirt suburban areas, although it's best to think of these areas not so much as being under the control of one side or the other. It's more of a gray zone that changes hands constantly. The one bit of news out of the battle for Bakhmut is that uh, a video game developer, Vladimir Yezhov, who worked for the video game studio GSC Game World, he was a developer for the very famous game Stalker, along with Cossacks and some other very famous games that have come out of Ukraine. Uh, He did give his life in the battle for Bakhmut, which kind of goes to show how deep uh, this is this war is affecting Ukrainian society. It really is uh, all kinds of people at the front right now, including these uh, game developers who whose work is known throughout the world. But going a bit further afield of the direct fighting, I want to turn our attention to the Angles airfield in Suratov region of Russia which is where a lot of these missile attacks have been coming from uh, by bombers launched from this airfield. Now, Angles Airfield was hit again. Uh, it had been hit previously. I honestly can't remember right now how much I discussed it at the time, but Angles Airfield had been attacked previously and was attacked again. Um, according to the Ukrainian defense intelligence, there's some idea that this attack on that base had prevented a major airstrike against Kiev that was planned for last week and did not happen. I don't really know how much of that is legitimate, how much of that is propaganda, how much of it is, you know, half and half, but it is believable for uh, their operations. If they are disrupted, uh, anything that disrupts their operations is good for Ukraine. But the thing I really pay attention to with Ingalls Airfield is that if that is within range of Ukrainian drone attacks, 
and that means Moscow is in range of Ukrainian drone attacks. And a lot of what has allowed the war to be executed with as little domestic disturbance as possible is that the Moscow middle class essentially has not been affected by it. Some have been drafted, but they've been minimally affected compared to the rest of the company, the rest of the country and other demographics within it. And if even a failed drone attack on the Moscow region takes place, it would really bring the war home. Now, this would galvanize support or it would shake support. If it galvanizes support, quite frankly, no more support needs to be galvanized. It doesn't really change anything. But if it shakes support, it could cause disturbance within the one demographic in Russia that actually has any bearing on a pseudo-democratic process within the country. If the Moscow middle class feels it, then they have the only chance of affecting the Russian government. And no matter how small that would be compared to everyone else, it exists somewhat. And them being able to live normally and non-politically is what allows this war to be continued as it is. However, talking about another strike of against Russian targets, I want to talk about one particular attack that occurred against a hotel in Donetsk City. Or rather, who was in that hotel in Donetsk City? Dmitry Rogozin. Dmitry Rogozin is the former head of the Russian space program, Roscosmos. Think of it as the Russian equivalent of NASA. He had been celebrating his birthday in Donetsk in a hotel within the city. And while he was having his birthday celebration, the hotel he was in was blown up by a Ukrainian shell or rocket. I was kind of unclear on what exactly was used. This uh, attack destroyed large parts of the hotel, and it also killed one of Dmitry's bodyguards, and long as injuring several other people, including Rogozin himself. Rogozin, the his injuries are kind of a mystery at the moment. The most reliable information is that he had a ended up with a piece of shrapnel in his lower spine that uh, could have paralyzed him. We don't know if it actually did or not. And that there was serious concerns about being able to actually transport him to somewhere else that had better, better medical care. According to Russian sources, he is currently recuperating in Moscow, although that is just alleged. We don't know. And any condition he is in is a mystery. There was a lot of rumors going around as to the nature of his injuries. There was a rumor that he basically had his genitals and uh, hindquarters blown off. And while that seems kind of a bit lurid and uh, mocking, if the actual injury was that he was hit in his lower back, that the rest of it could be uh, reliable. Now, Dmitry Gozin, he was extremely hooked into the Russian ultranationalist scene. And by ultranationalist, I mean neo-Nazis, like not just your standard Russian imperialism, which is bad enough on its own and is what caused this war. But I mean, he was active as at least um, parallel to the Russian imperial movement, an extreme fall rate ultranationalist movement that wants to restore the Russian Empire as a monarchy. So there's pictures of him with these people of everyone, you know, throwing up Nazi salutes and him having a grand old time among them. He is definitely a part of 
the extreme war hawk wing of the Russian establishment and not just war hawk wing, but I mean, full on, you know, destroy Ukraine, genocide the people, wipe it all out, move on to Europe, march on Paris and London kind of ultra nationalist uh, faction within the Russian government, which is probably why he was in Donetsk. Uh, Donetsk had become a hub for Russian activities, building up these extreme far right movements, including the Russian uh, imperial movement, all funded by uh, Russian oligarchs even before 2014, which was a cause for war. I've talked about this before, but let, let's just say that Donetsk, that is where the Russians who would agree with Rogozin would mostly be located out, outside of their headquarters in Moscow itself. And because he decided to spend his birthday with his fascist comrades, that is what happened to him. A whole lot of schadenfreude to that. But moving on from the more battlefield-related topics, I want to talk about what Zelensky has done uh, within the previous two weeks. Now, at first, he gave a surprise visit to the front at Bakhmut. And as I've described throughout these weeks, really is hell on earth. It is the most dangerous spot along the front lines and, quite frankly, probably the most deadly place on earth at the moment. And so he showed up at the front lines in Bakhmut, did a meet and greet with the soldiers, did a, a morale boost because seeing the head of state actually put himself on the line like that is always extraordinarily impressive and fantastic for morale. He had done something similar in Severodonetsk, where he showed up within the trenches in the heat of the fighting there. And really, part of his image as president, and I have so many other criticisms for him as president regarding you know domestic policies, but you cannot take away that he is a fantastic wartime president who is right there with the troops. And while meeting these soldiers in Bakhmut, he was given a flag that everyone signed off on. Well, not everyone, you know, <laughs> the, the, the unit that he was talking to all signed off on in order to bring him to the next spot on his journey, which was all the way to Washington, D.C. Zelensky had not left Ukraine since the beginning of the broad invasion in February. He has been quite famous for that, of saying that he would not leave. But throughout all this time, it turned out there was a trip within the works for him to visit Congress. So first, he gave a sit-down press conference with President Biden, and then a few hours later was sent to give a speech to the joint session of Congress, where he most of it was really him thanking the United States for all the aid that Ukraine has been given. Uh, without American aid, there would be no bullets in the rifles. There would be no shells in the artillery. Um, Highmark, everything is very much thanks to the support of the United States. And he thanked the country very much for that. Well, of course, uh, pointing out that more is always needed, especially if land, more land is to be taken back. And I think just by virtue of his charisma, um, even a lot of the people within Congress who were very, very critical of Ukraine still kind of had to go along with, you know, the applause, with the exception of uh, two Republicans in the far right uh, caucus. But even Brian Paul, who had 
been very critical of support to Ukraine, voted against it, tried to stall it through different uh, parliamentary means. Even he had to begrudgingly, you know, do the stand and clap. This was um, a huge catalyst for an increased amount of support for Ukraine. Um, he was there, so it was kind of hard to turn him down, it seemed, which included a extremely large multi-billion dollar cutout within the defense budget in the omnibus, omnibus bill that was recently passed to be sent to Ukraine to support the country and its defense. But this also included a Patriot missile system. The Patriot is an anti-air missile. It is very effective at shooting down enemy incoming missiles, which of course is extraordinarily important considering the events of today and yesterday. Now, this is only one battery at the start, but more are being being trained on essentially. So if Congress can be convinced to send more Patriot missiles, at least a few systems to prevent to be lined up um, on some of these uh, frontline cities to protect them. That could go a very long way in saving Ukrainian lives to defending Ukrainian infrastructure, which allows you know electricity, water to stay on, which allows the country to keep moving forward. So this could be a very important develop development if it is uh, de- deployed in enough numbers and in enough quality to uh, be effective. On the way back from Washington, it was just a one-day affair. As someone who has made that transatlantic trip a few times, I'm pretty much wiped out for at least a day or two on either direction of that trip. So having him go from Bakhmut to D.C. and back to Europe within just a very short amount of time, I don't have the stamina for that, I don't think. But he was able to come back from the United States, made a stopover trip in Poland, another one of Ukraine's major supporters uh, spoke with President Duda there, another person I don't much care for, but is very important for the uh, support of Ukraine before returning back to Kiev. Uh, Since coming back to Kiev, he has also given something of a State of the Union speech where he gave much of the usual things you'd expect to hear. The country is strong. We're going to win that kind of thing. But there's one part that stuck out to especially Romeo. I wish that that recording could have come out because it is very important and he caught on to it that uh, Ukraine is going to change some of its diplomatic uh, strategy to reach out more to Africa and Latin America. These are regions of the world that historically do have a bit more uh, sympathy for the Russian cause and antipathy towards um Western European and American uh, information and media, because look at history. Um, the people supporting Ukraine right now have not been so fantastic to, say, uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So there is a, a lot of inbuilt skepticism, though I would say that most of these countries have not actually supported Russia and have simply been more on the neutral side of things to soft support of Ukraine in large part because of the question of food shipments. Uh, Ukraine is a major supplier of grain for especially Africa. And because Russia has disrupted that, they're not naive. They know why they're not getting the food that they are supposed to be getting right now. And that has changed some of the diplomatic um, tides. And I would really like to go more in depth in that topic in the new year because I, both Romeo and I agree that this will be a very serious development within Ukraine's place, not only regarding support during the war, but also more generally as a um, player on the world stage, a diplomatic force.
And this last Ukraine-related topic I want to talk about is the dismantling of the Catherine II statue in Odessa. Uh, you may have seen some news about this uh, on a major square within Odessa, which is right across from one of my favorite restaurants that I hope is still operating. So shout out to Dizengoff in Odessa. Um, so right on that square, right next to the Potemkin steps, there is a or was rather a statue of Empress Catherine II of Russia. Odessa had been built, not the best word, um, organized on orders of Catherine following her conquest of southern Ukraine, though there had been, you know, a Moldovan town on the site along with a Turkish fortress. Cities don't appear out of nowhere is what I'm trying to say. But according to the narrative, she is kind of one of the founding mothers of the city. So there, the statue included her along with the other um, like early mayors and, and people who shaped Odessa in its early days. However, Ode uh, Catherine is not exactly a very well-beloved figure in Ukraine. She is the one who destroyed Ukrainian autonomy, burning down the Cossack siege, eliminating the special rights of the uh, Ukrainian officer class of um, insurfing a lot of the Ukrainian peasantry, reducing them from a status of free yeomen to as basically slaves, of violating every agreement with Ukrainians that they would be allowed to have autonomy within a kind of broader Russian empire. She destroyed the Crimean Khanate. She initiated the destruction of Poland. Not a great person. So the existence of this statue, especially since the uh, initiation of the war in February, has been very controversial. There's been a lot of talks to remove it. And in fact, the reason it was removed was that there was a petition to have it removed. And there is a rule that if enough people sign a petition, the presidential office has to have an answer for it. So there's a petition to remove the statue, and the response was, yes, let's remove the statue. But also the reason for the statue being in there in the first place is what also raised people's ire against it. Now, as with, quite frankly, statue discourse in the United States, there was, there was a feeling among its supporters that it was just something that was always there and just an indelible part of the city that cannot be removed without harming the city's history. And that's quite frankly nonsense. So the statue was initially built in the year 1900, quite a long time ago, maybe enough to be historical on its own, but then it was dismantled in 1920 following the uh, takeover of the area by the Soviet Union. And as you'd imagine, the Soviet Union in 1920 was not very fond of Russian emperors and empresses. So there it sat in storage for the next nearly century, until 2007, when a local Odessan oligarch named Ruslan Tarpan wanted to do a Russification campaign within Odessa to kind of tie it back to uh, its Russian imperial roots he wanted to kind of get across. And one of these projects was rebuilding this statue and putting it back into a rather public place of honor. So again, just the existence of the statue being there and not in a warehouse somewhere was a statement. It was planting the flags of the Russian world within the city. 
But what happened to Ruslan Tarpon? Well, in 2017, he decided to flee the country. Note that that is not necessarily connected to Maidan per se, that several years after Maidan. No, he was just a mafioso. He was involved in a massive corruption scheme to embezzle funds that were supposed to be used to fix up the city's sewage system, and Odessa's sewage system is not that great, largely because of this incident. So he took this money that was supposed to be used to uh, fix Odessa's sewage system and decided to just make it all of his own money, just stole most of it. So when there was uh, a raid on his property, it was he decided to just flee the country and is currently located in the United Arab Emirates, where he is still spreading his Russian nonsense. So yes, in a broader sense, the existence of this Catherine statue is now offensive to Ukrainian sensibilities. There has been a broader campaign to remove symbols of Russian imperialism, including uh, images of, say, Dostoevsky or Pushkin is really the big one because all these figures of Russian culture, almost to a man, were all very supportive of the Russian imperial project in sometimes quite bizarre kind of mystical religious terms. So a rejection of these people is rejection of their Russian imperialist ideology that is currently slaughtering people in Ukraine. Dostoevsky especially would have 100% supported this war in a maximum sense of the word. So again, part of this broader strategy of removing uh, visible Russian influence, but also just the guy who's responsible for this statue specifically is horrible. Just the worst. Now, this statue will be relocated to the Odessa Fine Arts Museum, where it will either be on display or in storage, but they will be the ones who are responsible for it. Excellent museum, by the way. Very large. I recommend visiting uh, if you ever find yourself in Odessa, Odessa Fine Arts Museum. But I'll be closing off this episode with an international topic. I was going to talk about two because initially I was going to also talk about a blockade of roads by Serbian activists going between Serbia and Kosovo, but that situation had largely resolved itself. So we'll just have to see if that grows into anything new. But much more difficult to talk about is a blockade of the unrecognized uh, Nagaro-Karabakh region, a region within, careful how to say this, but internationally recognized as being within Azerbaijan, but is a largely Armenian region. There have been several wars over this, dating back to before these two countries had even left the Soviet Union. Um, careful to talk about this issue because it is quite uh, legally and morally fraught. But in this case, there is a blockade going on by Azerbaijani activists. Well, I'll get to that to cutting off the one road that goes in between Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia proper, or the Republic of Armenia, because Nagorno-Karabakh is not recognized by anyone as part of being Republic of Armenia. But again, the Lashing Corridor, which is the only lifeline that connects these two areas, is the only way that Nagorno-Karabakh is able to get food, medicine, energy, literally anything. Now, following the Second Karabakh War, this was supposed to be protected by Russian peacekeepers. Most of the Karabakh region had been conquered by Azerbaijan, leaving a smaller rump territory still under the control of these um, ethnic Armenian authorities, but otherwise completely cut off from Armenia, except for the Slashing Corridor. Now, according to the Azeris, these are environmental activists. 
who are there to protest against uh, resource extraction and protecting the environment and all that. However, none of these people have any history as being environmental activists. They, in fact, have histories of being ultra-nationalist activists who are violently opposed to the existence of Armenians generally. Many of them have been employed by the uh, Azerbaijan state as well. So frankly, this whole cover-up of them being just independent activists protesting uh, environmental issues is the most transparent nonsense. They are there to put pressure on Nagorno-Karabakh by the Azerbaijan state. So in a geopolitical sense, as it relates to Ukraine, it is another show of how Russia has put itself in a position of being completely unable to fulfill its obligations, even when those obligations could be useful. Russia has no ability to stop this from happening, even though they are by treaty bound to protect this from happening. They do not have the soldiers, do not have the political will. They do not have the political capital to be able to say anything against Azerbaijan because they kind of need a good relationship with Azerbaijan in order to, say, get around sanctions that's happening through Azerbaijan. They cannot have their entire Caucasus border controlled by states who have the potential to be hostile to them. So they just have to let this happen to the Armenians. Now, the previous uh, conflict that had shown up earlier in the year between Azerbaijan and Armenia, as I've described in an earlier episode, the peace was brokered by the United States, which really moves in on uh, Russia's claim as this having a sphere of influence in this area. So really, Russia launching this war to protect its quote-unquote sphere of influence has actually completely eroded it everywhere else. But again, we've already talked about this. But on the more humanitarian level, not the geopolitical one, uh, this is a brewing humanitarian catastrophe. Like, they don't have medicine now, and there's no way to get it to them. Now, apparently some have been able to get through, but who knows uh, how much was able to do that. They don't have gasoline for generators, which is something that really hits home to me, considering um, seeing how much Ukrainians are relying on their generators to just have something resembling a functional life. So everyone should really keep an eye on what's happening there. It's bad, um, and all signs point to it getting worse. That concludes this episode. Um, and I, uh, this lost recording, had done a fantastic end-of-the-year recap, but that will have to be for a New Year's episode, I'm afraid, unless I can somehow be able to recover it. Fourth wall break, whatever. Um, but just to say it has been an extraordinarily difficult year for everybody. It has been a year where our entire lives and worlds were shaken. It's been a year where many of our friends, um, families, and just people we may know through one means or another work have, uh, had their lives stolen from them by the Russian fascist invader. And just today, we were given another reminder of what Russia intends to do to everyone. It was a hard year, but it was also, in some ways, an uplifting year. We were able to see what a society can look like when it is able to band together and support each other, defend each other, make sure that we have food, water, um, any needs we may have, 
helping people escape from disastrous situations. I'll save it for the recap with Romeo because it was, I swear to you, quite all good. <laughs> um, but just to say that, uh, here's hoping that in 2023, we will see victory, that we will see the liberation of all of Ukraine, the freedom of all Ukrainians, the end of the Russian Empire and its many abuses and genocides, and people in Ukraine being able to return as much as they can, considering how much has been destroyed and lost, returning to a normal life where they're able to worry about the little things again. But with that, thank you very much for listening. If you would like to support this podcast, Ukraine Without Hype, um, you may go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Ukraine Without Hype and donate on one of our tiers. Please share us with your friends, tell your families about us, spread us around social medias, the whole thing, like, subscribe, all the things that one does with online content. You know the real, you know the deal. So I'd like to thank our current patrons who make this all possible. So thank you very much to Deborah Grazer, Will Stevens, David Shepard, Giorgio, Ivana, Anna Karen, Anonymous, Devi, Etienne, Sam, Theo, Adam, Aiden, Alex, Anastasia, Barbara, Big Rob, Brianna, Captain Technical, Chris Bennington, Chris Walker, Crystal Burns, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Deborah Lee, Eric Honnold, Grace Kraus, Had to Laugh, Jacob Holm, James Wise, Jenny Louise, Jennifer Jarvis, Jurd, Justin Devendorf, Kristen Swanland, Laura DeLeon, Lev Goldener, Levy Grove, Lati, Melissa Caselco, Mike Perron, Noam Hart, Paul Bailey, Randy McNerlin, Sanjay, Scott, Gengris, Scott Tokaryuk, Steve Bien, Steve Greenberg, Stuart Akers, T. Bart, Thomas Sobiek, Vic, and Victoria Leantoneva. Thank you all very much for your support. In the new year, I ask that you all keep your attentions on Ukraine. The war is not over. The war will not be over for some time. And the country and all the people in it continue to need your support. Thank you all very much for listening to Ukraine Without Hype through this difficult 2022 that began with a visit to the front lines when they were more far away and out of sight and out of mind and ending the year where the front line is in the sky above our heads. And thank you very much. Slava Ukraini.